Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Hey, Ulstakuya here, and before things begin, please make sure to click the link down in the description below. This month's audiobook from Chirp Audiobooks is From the Ruins of Empire. It's normally $19.99, but right now it's on sale for $3.99, and we are going to look at colonialism in Asia this month. Specifically, though, from the perspective of the people who were there, not the more European-oriented lens. And I'm really excited to see all the different crazy things that we're going to discover. But anyway, enjoy the episode. I think it's very fitting, considering we're talking the Great Wall today. Sucker you here and welcome back to a patron exclusive podcast episode. Yes, we are back. Guys, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry that this is kind of delayed. It's delayed because I got sick yesterday. I I just felt awful. I passed out when I got home in the morning from like dropping something off for my wife, which normally I start working immediately, but I, I just couldn't keep my eyes open. And then so I got up and I spent the next like six hours recording. And then what happened is that immediately after that, I just passed out again once my wife got home for like three more hours. I I was just so, so tired. There's no way I could get the stuff that I was trying to get worked on done. So I saw some previous statements. I say some previous. I saw some statements that were on previous posts that I made that I really liked the idea of. So Caitlin, in one of the posts, wrote podcast idea, ancient construction of how the pyramids were made, the Great Wall, especially Roman concrete. I absolutely love the podcast, binged everything on Spotify, and had to become a patron for more. Well, Caitlin, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate all of you who are listening to this right now and are the people that are responsible for me being able to do what it is that I do. It's exhausting at times, but it's what I love, and I'm only able to do it because of support from people like you, so thank you. And so I have to say that I absolutely love that idea. Okay, guys, there are many many, so many monuments and other things that deserve their own little deep dive. So what I figured that I would do this week is I would talk about the Great Wall of China. Now, the reason I'm doing that in the first place is because I feel like over the past several months, I have focused very heavily on a lot more things in, say, North America and Europe, just because those are the questions and different things that I've answered. So I figured that I wanted to go in a little bit of a different direction. And I think that this is a great idea for one. So the Great Wall of China is, it's kind of a misnomer. Like it's the Great Wall because it is a massive wall, but it was actually a series, like an ancient series of walls and fortifications. And this totaled more than 13,000 miles in length, all located in Northern China. Now, perhaps this is the most recognizable symbol of China, because China has a very long 
very vivid, very rich history. And the Great Wall, at least what we think of, was originally conceived by Emperor Qin Shi Huang, who was, that was the ruler, like the first emperor of China in the 3rd century BC. This all being as a kind of means of preventing invasions, to put it lightly, from barbarian nomads who were constantly harassing the northern border. The best known, though, and best preserved section of the Great Wall was actually built in the 14th through the 17th century during the Ming Dynasty, almost 2,000 years later. And though the Great Wall never actually really prevented people from invading China, it did come to function as a very powerful symbol of China's civilization and the strength and ability of it to levy its workers. So, question is then, how did it start? Well, the Great Wall developed, as I said, from a series of different border fortifications and castles, these all being part of individual Chinese kingdoms that were during the Warring States period. And for several centuries, these kingdoms probably were just as concerned with, you know, their protection from their neighbors as they were with the barbarians to the north that might invade and raid them. That's just it. The Warring States period is one of those massive, messy things because there were dozens upon dozens upon dozens of these little states. And then over time, they began to consolidate into a series of large ones. Eventually, I believe I believe there was about seven, if I recall correctly. I probably need to do a video, a video and a podcast episode. I could do probably several podcast episodes that are dedicated to the Warring States period because it's kind of a mess. But, you know, on this channel, we uh, we, we kind of love messes. Messes are very fun to explore and just have fun with. <laughs> so one of these states, it was around the seventh century. You have the state of Chu and they started to construct a permanent defensive system. This was known as the square wall. And this fortification was situated in the northern part of the kingdom's capital province from the sixth to the fourth century. Other states started to follow Chu's example, such as in the southern part of the Qi state, there was an extensive perimeter wall that was gradually created using an existing river, using dikes, bulwarks, like mountain terrain, like anything that you could do that would essentially make the passes where armies would normally come through more difficult to get through. That's the basic idea. You don't need necessarily a massive wall that encloses something. Just building a fortification to make it kind of difficult to get by in the first place where there are troops stationed, that in and of itself becomes a thing that has to be taken care of. The Qi wall at this time was mainly made of earth and stone, and it ended at the shores of the Yellow Sea. In the Zhongshan state, and also I need to probably preface this because I should have said it from the very beginning, in this podcast, there are going to be a lot of Chinese names. I am not Chinese. I do not speak Chinese. I, I'm going to get things wrong. I apologize for that, but it is what is going to happen. I'm telling you this right now. So the Zhongshan state, they had a wall system that was built to stop invasions from the state of Zhao and Qin, which were to their southwest. And there were two defensive lines in the Wei state. You had the Hexi, which was west of the Yellow River. And then you have the Henan, which was south of the Yellow River. So that, that's what it signified. So you had these two walls. The Hexi wall was a fortification that was against the Qin state and the Western nomads. It was built during the reign of King Hui, 
and it was expanded from the dikes of the Luo River in the western border. It started in the south near Zhangyuang Cave, which was east of Mount Hua. Again, we're going to have to be looking at something in terms of a map in order for me to really properly show this. I think that this would almost be good in terms of a video, but I, I want to kind of tell the story. And if, the, if this is something that you all would like as a kind of video that would go up on the History of Everything podcast or podcast YouTube channel, please let me know, because I do find it to be very interesting. But anyway, it was east of this mountain, Mount Hua, and it ended at Guyang in what is now the Inner Mongolia region. So if you're trying to get an idea of it and you're looking at China, if you're looking where Mongolia is, that's where this was, because Chinese civilization at the time, like this, this is at the border with the nomads that were constantly creating problems. So you had the Henan Wall, which was built to protect Daliang, which was the capital of the state that that place is now called Kaifeng. If you're trying to look it up like K-A-I-F-E-N-G. So if you're trying to look at where that is, it's Kaifeng. That was repaired and it was extended during King Hui's later years. The Zheng state also built a wall system, which was rebuilt by the Han after it conquered Zheng. Mind you, this is the Han state. This is not necessarily the Han dynasty, but it's the Han state that conquered Zheng because all these states were trying to conquer one another. The state of Zhao completed a southern wall and a northern wall, and the southern wall was built mainly as a defense against the Wei state. So you can see from this, they are building all of these different things to try and defend themselves from the other states because that it's kind of necessary. It is the warring states period. The states are constantly trying to take over one another. So these were defenses for both the inside and for outside forces. They serve two purposes. Over time, the Qin state grew politically and militarily to become the strongest among these seven states. But it was very frequently raided by the Donggu and the Lufan, which were two nomadic people that were in the north. So the Qin went ahead and erected a wall that started from Lintiao and went north along the Liupan Mountains, and it ended all the way at the Yellow River. And in the Yan state, there were two separate defensive lines. You had the Northern Wall and the Yishui Wall, which in an effort to defend the kingdom from attacks by the northern groups, such as the Donggu, Linhu, Lufan, all these different nomads, as well as by the Qi state to the south, the Yishui Wall was expanded from the dike of the Yi River as a defense line against both Qi and Zhao. I really wish that I had a map that was up here right now that would just show this. I think that when I post this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up a map that is an image that just shows, I want to show something that has all the different fortifications so you can kind of follow along if you have it put up on Patreon. But as I said, this was against Qi and Zhao, which were its two main rival states. And it began southwest of Yi City, which was the capital, and it ended south of Wenan. In 290 BC, the Yan state built the northern wall along the Yan Mountains, rightfully named, and starting from the northeast in the area of Zhangjikou in Hebei, passing over the Liao River and extending all the way to the ancient city of Jiangping, which is modern-day Liaoyang, if you're trying to look that up. This was the last segment of the Great Wall that was going to be erected during the Warring States period. And it was 
all of these separate little fortifications. I may say little. Some of them were very extensive, but in comparison to what would come, they were rather small. You see, in 221 BC, you had Shi Huangdi, or like that the first Qin emperor, and he completed his annexation of Qi and thus unified China. This was the first guy to unite all of China. And so he ordered the removal of a number of the fortifications that were set up between the previous states, because naturally these are going to serve as obstacles to any kind of internal movements and his administration. You don't want to leave any kind of defensive walls that are up that block a city from another city, because potentially if a rebel rises up and they take control of it, well, shoot, now you have to deal with all these defenses. By tearing down all of the defenses, what this was going to do was to not only hurt any chances of rebels actually succeeding, but simultaneously it was going to be a show of power of saying, we are not separate states. This is not one state that has conquered other states. This is China. We are all China. We are all one. Like This is the state. Everything is part. There is no reason for walls to internally divide us. So what he did then was send a general by the name of Meng Tian to the garrison of the northern border. And the reason for this was to block any incursions of the nomadic Zhongnu and to link the existing wall segments, because what they were going to do was take all of these northern walls that had been built by the varying states, such as Qin, Yan, Zhao, etc., and they were going to make what was called the 10,000 Li Long Wall, which to explain that, because Li is a unit of measurement that was used in China, like that's how they measured things, two Li is approximately equal to a kilometer. It's not exact, but one Li is half a kilometer or so. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. And this period of construction began around 214 BC, and it lasted a decade. So if you want to think about it, the 10,000 Li Long Wall, that's, um, if you're doing the rough math, that's around 5,000 kilometers. And for my American audience, as you know, I'm an American myself, uh, two Li is approximately equal to 0.6 miles. So, yeah, that is three, 3,000 miles. It, it's, it's extensive. Very, very extensive. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers, conscripted workers. And I say conscripted because, yeah, they would either, you know, be paid or forced to work. Hence the conscription part. They, were, they would labor on this project with some estimates stating that up to 400,000 deaths could have been caused by this construction. And there's all these rumors and all these things about dead workers just having been thrown into the wall to serve as, you know, additional materials for it that they didn't have to pay for. And so with the fall 
of the Qin dynasty a couple years later after Shi Huang's death, it didn't really work out so well. I kind of want to do a whole story on him, but it's kind of funny that China's first dynasty literally lasted one guy. That's it. Because he was such a, I don't want to necessarily use the term oppressive, but he was such an authoritarian, like an authoritarian ruler that wanted to control and make sure that he governed all of China. He wanted to remove any ideas of disunity from people. We're talking book burnings. We're talking like, the horrible punishments were he was a very authoritative ruler and people naturally resisted him so as soon as he died his whole thing like the whole empire just immediately fell apart i I gotta cover that at some point in the future so his this wall this grand project that they had worked on during that time was largely left ungarrisoned and fell into disrepair i mean go figure people would be more concerned at that point about their own local protection After everything literally just falls apart. So you have the next dynasty, the Han. And during the reign of the Han Emperor, Wu Di, who ruled from, it's like he ruled from around 140 or so BC. It's if I looked it up in here, I believe. Yeah. okay, I did have it here in my notes. It was like 141 to 87 BC. And this wall was strengthened as a part of the overall campaign against the Zhongnu. And from that period, the Great Wall also contributed to the exploitation of farmland because what they would do is after building a wall and you would engage in military means, think think of what happened with Rome and expanding through Britain. You had Hadrian's Wall, which had this massive series of forts that specifically was used to kind of pacify the countryside, allowing people to farm and develop trade because by building this massive series of fortifications and maintaining it this enabled the growth and development of the trade route that would become known as the silk road the only reason that the silk road could even function is because of large series of military fortifications that would protect china's trade like that that that's how you maintained it and so in 121 bc A 20-year project of construction was started on the Hexi Wall, which was then generally known as the Side Wall, which was between Yongden, which is now in Gansu, in the east, and Lake Lopner, which is now Xinjiang, which was in the west. What they did was that every so often you would have a strong point. This could be a beacon, a tower, a fort, a castle etc. Like it depended on how it was. The idea was every point was going to be in communication with one another. You would have a beacon every five li, you would have a tower every 10 li, you would have a fort every 30, and a castle would be there every 100. The idea of course being that by having all of these they would be able to work together, but I will explain later exactly how that functioned. The main work of the wall during the Dong, which was the Eastern Han period from 25 AD to 220, that took place during the reign of Liu Zhu, which is Guangwu Di, who in 38, he ordered the repair of four parallel lines of the Great Wall in the area south of the Hexi Wall. The Great Wall wasn't 
only for defense. As I've been saying, the, the idea of this was to centralize control of trade and travel to make sure that these trade routes were well within the control of the government, because that is going to be bringing in a ludicrous amount of income that they're going to be able to use to fund all these other building projects, because the Great Wall is expensive. It was very, very, very expensive to maintain. So if anything happened to trade or if there was a drought or if literally anything happened that could destabilize the economic system, the Great Wall was not going to be able to be funded. Like you wouldn't be able to actually pay for it or other building projects. That's just how it was. And other dynasties saw this over time. During the Bay, which is the Northern Wei Dynasty, the Great Wall was repaired and extended as a kind of defense against attacks from the Zhuan Zhuan and the Kitan tribes that were in the north. In 417 AD, a part of the Great Wall was built south of Changchun, which was from Qingchen, which is now in Hebei, to Wuyuan, which is again now in Inner Mongolia in the west. And this extended more than 620 miles or 1,000 kilometers. During the reign of Taiwu Di, a lower and thinner wall of rammed earth was built around the capital as a kind of complement to the Great Wall because you, you still needed more defense because it was very possible to get past the Great Wall in the first place. It, the Great Wall served as a means of control for trade, but it would not actually stop a large army. It would merely delay one. And this is one of the reasons why you would have all of the fortifications and the castles and all these different things so that you would have armies that would be present that would be able to go and meet an enemy that was trying to come to you. So in this case, if they get past that, there was additional walls, additional defenses that were built around some cities to complement it because of how close they were. Starting from Guangling in the east, this wall extended to the eastern side of the Huanghe, which formed a circle around Datong. In 549, after the Dongwei kingdom moved its capital to east to Yi, it also built a segment of the Great Wall in an area that is now the Shanxi province. In order to strengthen its northern frontier and prevent any kind of invasions from coming in by the western Zhao, the Bei Qi kingdom launched several big construction projects that were nearly as big as the ones that we saw back during the Qin dynasty. In 552, you had this segment that was built on the northwestern border, and it only three years later, the emperor ordered the recruitment of, and I kid you not, 1.8 million workers to repair and extend other sections. I, I, want, you to th I want you to think about that for a second. 1.8 million workers. We're talking about something on the lines of a construction project that perhaps the United States back during the Great Depression if we were trying to levy a bunch of base workers to do something to, you know, provide stimulus to the economy, that would be a massive deal to do that. Leveling 1.8 million workers for, for a construction project? That's insane. But that construction took place between the south entrance of the Zhuyong Pass, which is near modern-day Beijing, and Datong, which is in Shanxi. In 556, a new fortification was set up in the east and extended to the Yellow River, and they just kept on building. The following year, there was a second wall that was built inside the Great Wall within modern Zhangxi, beginning in the vicinity of Laoyang, or not Laoyang, it was um, Laoying. 
that's what it was. So you had Laoying, which was east of Pyongyang. And this extended all the way to the east beyond the Yanman Pass and the Pingqing Pass and ended in the area around Jiaguan in Shanxi. It's just they're building these things everywhere. And in 563 AD, the Emperor Wu Chengdi of the Beiqi had a segment repaired along the Taihang Mountains. And that is the part of the Great Wall that is found today in the area around Longguan, Guangchang, and Fuping, which is in Shanxi and Hebei. In 565, the inner wall built in 557 was repaired and a new wall was added that started in the vicinity of Zheguan, which extended to the Juyong Pass in the east and then joined to the outer wall. So it's just wall after wall connecting in all these different little segments that are constantly being repaired and added onto. We're talking that during the Beiqi period, they added some 900 miles or 1,500 kilometers. They added towns, they added barracks, they added all these different, just this massive, massive project to tighten control over all of these new sections. It was huge. And in 579, in order to prevent the invasion of the Beizhou kingdom by the Tujie, which were another group of nomads, and the Kitan, the Emperor Jing started a massive rebuilding program on the areas of the wall located in the former Beiqi kingdom, starting in Yanman in the west and ending at Jiaxi in the east. They're just going and going and going. But this is all, again, they're focused a bit more on defense because it's a series of kingdoms now again that are building things to maintain their defenses as much as they can. So they're building a lot of overlapping and internal walls again, just in order to be able to defend more. And so during the Sui dynasty, which was from 581 to 618, the Great Wall was repaired and improved seven times in an effort to try to defend the country from these nomads in the north. After the Tang dynasty replaced the Sui dynasty, the country grew much stronger militarily. It actually defeated the Tujie in the north and it expanded beyond the original frontier, which, because you did that now, the Great Wall over time lost its significance as a fortification. There was really no need for any repairs or additions because the peoples to the north, the ones who had been constantly harassing China for quite literally centuries, were conquered. There was, there was no real need for it anymore. That is, of course, until the Song Dynasty, because in the Song Dynasty, you had the Liao and the Jin peoples in the north, which were a constant threat. The Song rulers were forced to withdraw to the south, like beyond the lines that had been built by, uh, not built, built by the Qin, the Han, and the other northern dynasties. And many areas on both sides of the wall were subsequently taken over by the Liao and then the Jin dynasties. When the Song rulers had to retreat even farther to the south, Way south of the Yangtze River, which is Changjian, repairs to the walls or extensions were just no longer feasible. They were, they were well beyond any kind of control that they could have. Limited repairs were carried out during the Liao times, but only in the areas between the Yazi and Huntong rivers where they actually needed them. But in 1115, after the Jin Dynasty was established, work was performed on two defensive lines at Mingchang. The old wall there previously was called the Wushu Wall or the Jinyuan Fort, 
it ran west from a point that was north of Wulanhara. Then it wound around through the Hailatu Mountains, it turned north, and then it went west again, finally ending at the Nuanshui River. The second of the lines was the new Mingchang Wall, also called the Inner Jin Wall or the Jin Trench, which was constructed south of the Old Wall, and it started in the west from a bend in the Huanghe, and it ended at the Sungari River. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. During the Yuan Dynasty, which was from 1206 to 1368, the Mongols controlled all of China, as well as a large parts of others of Asia and even sections of Europe. As a defensive structure, then the Great Wall wasn't important at all, really, anymore. I mean, OK, there were aspects because they had some forts and other key areas that would be repaired and garrisoned in order to control things for trade. Because remember, the primary reason for this wall is to exert control. It's not necessarily serving as a massive defensive structure. It's primarily a means of asserting control. So they used the wall in order to assert control over commerce and to limit any kind of threats of rebellion from the Chinese Han and the other nationalities. Because again, this is the Yuan dynasty. They're Mongols. They're foreigners that are controlling China. So many parts of China are not happy with them being the rulers. So they still maintain some of these defenses in an effort to be able to defend their own territory and keep control of the populace. But then after them, you have the rise of the Ming Dynasty. And the Ming Dynasty from 1368 to 1644, they maintained and strengthened the wall greatly. You have to remember that this is after the Yuan. This is after the Mongols took over everything. So in the eyes of this Chinese dynasty, they need to stop it. Any potential threat from the future of any nomadic tribe, it has to stop. So they drastically worked to strengthen the Great Wall to prevent another Mongolian invasion. The majority of the work took place along the old walls that were built by the Beichi and the Bei Wei. Most of the Great Wall that stands today is actually the result of the work that was done during the reign of the Hongzhi Emperor, one of the Ming emperors during this time. This is where the Great Wall, as we know it, really starts to come into being. It's much more recent than we actually give it credit for. Starting west of the Juyong Pass, this part of the wall was split into south and northern lines, respectively named the inner and the outer walls. And along the wall, there were many strategic passes, which were, these were fortresses, essentially, massive fortresses with gates that would kind of control the inflow and outflow of people and goods. Among them were you had the Juyong, 
the Dalma, the Zhijing, etc. And these three right here, these were the closest to the Ming capital of Beijing. And together, they were referred to as the three inner passes. They were the primary ones. Further west were the Yanmen, Ningwu, Piantao, all these others that were known as the three outer passes. Both the inner and the outer passes were very, very important in protecting the capital and were usually heavy, heavily garrisoned, even in during times where they couldn't afford to defend other parts. These absolutely were the key areas to be protected. Of course, that being said, the protection is not going to last forever, and the Ming would eventually fall. They would be replaced by the Qing dynasty, which was kind of ironically from this, uh, it was Manchu. Manchu being one of the northern tribes that went and conquered them. The very things that they had built the wall or maintained the wall to protect against. Which that story I probably need to get into one day because it's, um, it, it's kind of a wild one. But after the Qing replaced the Ming, there was a change in ruling strategy called the Huai Ro or the mollification, in which what happened was the Qing tried to pacify the leaders and the peoples of Mongolia, Tibet, and all other nationalities by essentially not interfering with the local, social, cultural, or religious lives of them. Essentially, rule with a light touch. As long as you paid your dues and you swore allegiance to the Qing, you were pretty much allowed to do what it is that you wanted. A lot of these nationalities that would have caused significant problems before were left much to their own devices. And because of that strategy, it which was successful, the Great Wall didn't really need to be used because people were significantly less likely to rebel. The Great Wall was thus repaired less and less and less frequently. And over time, the whole thing just fell into ruin. Now, that being said, the Great Wall, if we're thinking about it, it had three main parts, as I talked about. You had the passes, you had the signal towers, and you had, of course, you know, the walls. So to explain what this is and kind of how it came to be, the passes were strongholds that were along the wall. They could be forts or castles. Usually, these would be located at key positions, such as intersections on trade routes or say, on high points where they were needed for defense of a specific pass, anything like that. The ramparts of many passes were faced with huge bricks and stone, with dirt, with crushed stone as a filler, and they were made strong. These bastions measured some 30 feet high and 13 to 16 feet wide at the top. Within each pass would be an access ramp for horses and ladders for soldiers. The outside parapet was crenellated, and the inside parapet, or the Yuqing, was a kind of low wall around three feet high that prevented people and horses from simply falling off the top. If you've ever seen any of the movies and you're looking at like the sections of the walls and these other territories where it's like, yes, you could, it's like a whole road that's just 20 feet off the ground. That, that's what we're talking about. And so in addition to serving as an access point for merchants and other civilians, the gate within the pass was used as an exit for the garrison to counterattack raiders or to send out patrols. Because the walls, it's not like what you think of with a castle wall. See, when we think of a castle wall, you're thinking of something where soldiers are attacking it, they're laying siege to it, they have to take control of the wall, and there are soldiers up on the wall that are defending it to stop them. Not necessarily. 
this is going to hold someone back. But the primary purpose for one of these was to serve as a defensive strong point, but primarily to allow the armies that were stationed around it to be able to have control over the battlefield where they would be going. You needed troops, like large numbers of troops, to actually maintain the defenses here. You couldn't just rely on the walls. Bolts and locker rings were set on the inner panel of each one of these massive doors. We're talking huge double doors of wood that would be blocking, or rather, I say blocking, that would be the gateway that would allow people to go. And on top of each gate was a gate tower that would serve as a watchtower and a command post. Usually, it stood one to three stories high and was constructed of either wood or bricks and wood. It really depended on where they were and what materials you had available. And built outside the gate where the enemy was most likely to attack was something called a Wang Chen, which was a semicircular parapet that shielded the gate from direct assault. So you have this low thing on the outside that it's not big, but what it's going to do is it, it means that you can't just rush the gate immediately. And extending beyond of the strategic Wen Chang's was an additional line of protection called a Lu Cheng, which was often topped by a tower used to watch those behind the wall and to direct troop movements for any battles that would be waged there. Around the gate entrance, oftentimes there was a moat, which in this case, no, we're talking a moat. You're, you're, we're not talking like something filled with water. We pretty much just mean a trench. That is what a moat was. This would be over time formed in the process of just digging earth to build the fortifications. Because you're not lugging stone thousands of miles necessarily, though you might in some places. The big thing that you're doing is you're taking a lot of the materials that you have there, especially for the earth fortifications, and you're using, when you dig that trench, you're using those mounds of dirt to help reinforce the, the wall that you're building and the tower that you're building. But this doesn't matter necessarily unless you have the ability to signal people that the enemy is here which is why they used signal towers that were also called beacons or beacon terraces, uh, smoke mounds, etc. These were used every five li or so to send military communications. These beacons, which would be in the form of like straight up fires or lanterns, which were during the night or smoke signals during the daytime. Other methods such as raising banners, beating clappers, firing guns once they, you know, that was actually a thing. These were also used. Signal towers would oftentimes be built on hilltops in order to provide maximum visibility because you wanted to be able to see things. They usually had self-contained high platforms or towers. The lower levels would contain rooms for the soldiers as well as stables, sheepfolds, storage areas, essentially anything that they needed to live there. And then, of course, you have the, the walls itself, which we've already gone into DZ Hill about. Today, though, The Great Wall is very different from what it was. The Great Wall today is generally recognized as one of the most impressive architectural feats in human history. It's it just it's amazing what it was that was done, how long it's been around, how much has been done for it. And in 1987, UNESCO designated the Great Wall a World Heritage Site. In fact, I'm sure you all heard of this. I'm sure you all heard of this. But back in. I remember growing up as a kid, there was that statement that people said that, oh, the Great Wall is the only man-made structure that is actually visible from space. But that whole thing, if you somehow still believe it and you haven't looked it up, that is in fact false. That is not actually a thing. You cannot see the Great Wall from space. No, that is is not a thing. So over the years, 
roadways have been cut through the wall in various points, and many sections have just deteriorated from centuries of neglect. The best-known section of the Great Wall of China, Badaling, which is located 43 miles northwest of Beijing, that right there is the wall that you think of when you think of the Great Wall. That was rebuilt in the late 1950s, and it was built as a kind of cultural-slash-tourist attraction, specifically that it attracts thousands of national and foreign tourists every single day. But other than that, the wall, it doesn't really serve a purpose anymore. The majority of the wall was over time dismantled, uh, pieces of it being taken specifically to provide building materials for other building projects all across China, because, you know, there was a lot of that with a lot of people. So that northern section, the one by Beijing, that's that's it. And it's much smaller than what we think of. It's really no longer the Great Wall. It's a replica of the Great Wall of China. But that all being said, I do hope that you will have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening. Let me know in the comments below what it is that I should do. I know the last episode I did was kind of short. I was trying to get it out because I was, I know it's ironic I'm saying this right now. I was running out of time then, but hey, here we are having done this again. So, (laughs) hey, this one's long. I'm looking at it now. It looks like it's going to be around uh, 38 or 39 minutes. So, hey, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. Thank you to everyone who has listened. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much for being my patrons. And I wish you all the best of luck. Goodbye, guys. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code super 24.